Hi, everybody, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of 80s All Over. I'm Drew McQueenie, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, live from Philadelphia, Scott Weinberg. Hey, this is Scott Weinberg from Philadelphia, home of the world champion, Philadelphia Eagles. And we are here with a very special bonus episode for our loyal Patreon subscribers. We want to thank everybody who supports us financially uh, or with reviews or with comments on Twitter, any uh, Facebook recommendations. When people say, hey, recommend me some podcasts. I can't listen to how did this get made all day? And you come out and go, 80s all over is one of eight that are great. We see that and we appreciate it every time. Thank you. It really does help, guys. In fact, one of you came up with uh, the loose idea for today's episode. We're still fine-tuning it. You're going to hear some of that here on the air, but we liked it enough that we wanted to take it and run with it today, and it all came about because of the conversation we had in the December 1982 episode about the film Kiss Me Goodbye with James Caan, Sally Field, and Jeff Bridges, in which I asserted that it may be the single most punchable performance that we've watched so far. I really do find James Caan almost unwatchably offensive in that film. It's bad. Yeah, he is. Uh, and it's weird because you could see what they're going for. Like, he's, they want him to be like a Han Solo type rascal. And, you know, and it just that's not what that's not what he does. <laughs> <laughs> Drew came up with the he said, let's let's each come up with a list of I think his phrase was punchable dicks. And uh, he said, come up with a list of punchable dicks. And I, I kind of took that a little bit different. And as we go through our lists, you'll see what I mean. Uh, Drew came up with specific actors or characters that he wanted to punch, whereas I thought mainly of character actors who are particularly well known for playing dicks. So perfect example. You go first, because I have a feeling if we go just alphabetically by A, we both probably have one guy on our list. Yeah, yeah. These are not in any kind of ranked order at all. I just jotted down 10 good names. So uh, to me, w- one of the most punchable dicks is got to be Lance Henriksen in Near Dark. That's a really good choice. That's not where I thought you were going. But yeah, the great thing about him is that he's not just he's got kind of an intense glower. So he does play a dick really well. But thanks to James Cameron and some other good directors, Catherine Bigelow and, and more. He's interesting when he's playing kind of a good guy, too. Anything else off the top of your head where he's played like a rotten? No, and that one, Near Dark is so great because that is that entire family seems dedicated to, um, for those of you who haven't seen the film, it's an early Catherine Bigelow movie about a group of roaming vampires who created sort of a loose family. And um, one of the girls in the family meets a guy who she wants to maybe recruit or maybe eat. And one of the big set pieces in that film is when they take over a redneck bar, lock the doors, and then just have their way with them. What's great about it is that family seems to relish the fact that nobody can do anything to them. So they all seem to like really get off on being assholes in that room. I I love that Catherine Bigelow and and the screenplay by Eric Red. I love that the romanticization, the romanticism of, of vampires was kind of in vogue again, you know, with Adam's Dracula and that kind of stately, sexy vampire. And, and to me, near dark feels like a, a kick to the door saying they're also just feral monsters too. And that's why I think near dark is probably my favorite vampire movie. I absolutely love it. And Lance Henriksen and the late great Bill Paxton, also an amazing dick in this movie, but such an entertain, <laughs> such a ridiculously entertaining dick that uh, it's remarkable. All right, Drew, what do you got? I'm going to go with a guy who I'm not a big fan of this guy in general, but there was one film where he got hold of a piece of great writing, an adaptation of a piece of great writing, I should say, and 
in the way he played it, he revealed that he might be truly one of the uber assholes. James Belushi in About Last Night. Now, that's interesting. Would not have thought of that. Haven't seen it in many decades. Explain to me why. Well, Bernie Litko, the character that he's playing in the original onstage version of it, David Mamet play Sexual Perversity in Chicago, Bernie Litko was meant to be what toxic masculinity is incarnate. And he's meant to be that terrible voice in his friend's ear, constantly suggesting the worst. And his monologues are delightful, but they're also misogynistic and horrifying. And it kind of is a preamble to that Neil Labute school of misogyny theater. With Neil Labute, you never get the refutation. You get the feeling Neil Labute actually really likes all the stuff that comes out of his characters. I get the feeling David Mamet did not. In the movie about last night, the problem is they cast Belushi and they never told him, your guy's not right. So Belushi's playing it like he is the hero of the film and every piece of advice he gives is solid gold and it's directed that way too. So the movie really puts Bernie Litko as you should listen to this guy. He's hilarious and awesome. That's interesting. I will I will think about that when I revisit the film. I didn't think much of it as a kid, but it's one of those movies that like, you know, it's about adults for adults. So maybe as a kid, the meat of that movie would have gone over my head. But uh, I do look forward to revisiting about last night. Do you ever see the remake? I did. And it's funny, Kevin Hart plays the role there, and they they handle it correctly, where I really feel like that movie spends a lot of time diffusing what that character says and what he does and showing how there is a human being underneath that who's learning. I think the remake actually did a better job of that character. And I love Kevin Hart, so maybe I will watch that. My next dick is kind of a ultimately punchable dick. I'm hesitant to even bring up one particular movie, but I will. Let's just take a moment to bask in the dickness of Michael Ironside. <laughs> All right, uh, just here, here, uh, just a few S- scanners, visiting hours, Space Hunter, Top Gun, of course, Extreme Prejudice, and it's 90, but of course, Richter in Total Recall. Even when he plays ostensibly nice guys, I'm not sure I buy it. <laughs> Yeah, he's just that he's just got that face, you know, I'm, it's like um, when your dad comes home from a long day at work and, and he looks really miserable. So you just kind of keep your mouth shut and you realize, oh, no, he just always looks like that. Like, he always he just he just I, has a grumpy demeanor. And I bet you he's a sweetheart. But, man, he is an intense looking guy. And it's like use what God gave you. And if you got that voice and that those eyes and that glower, use it. And he is a great villain slash dick slash what you call it what you will i'm gonna go ahead and give it to our z entry for this uh not alphabetical uh look at uh assholes from the 80s i'm gonna go ahead and go straight to billy zabka oh good all right knock one off my list there's a reason that zabka is held up as sort of the prototypical 80s dick exactly and drew there are so many if you were to like go through all the teen movies from the 80s the billy zabka character the look was almost iconic. He not only looked exactly like that character, but he embodied a certain version of it. There's, I think the other great example would be uh, James Spader in Pretty in Pink. But I think what Zabka does so perfectly is Zabka doesn't have the class thing going on. You get the feeling when James Spader is a dick, it's because James Spader thinks he's better than you. You get the feeling when Billy Zabka is being a dick. It's just because Billy Zobka's a dick deep down in his DNA and can't help it. He is born to be that guy. Yeah, I, I think he's underrated as an actor because oh, I do too. He, that, yeah, he's, good he's got that look. He's got the look, the waspy, sneery, snooty look. But 
he's really good in the Karate Kid at playing that. Oh, knowing how knowing how to play it is above and beyond how you look. Uh, you know, he it helps that he and Martin Cove in that movie feed off of each other. And Martin Cove is such a toxic piece of garbage at the top of that pyramid. Is he's a dick in Back to School as well? Is he? Yeah, Zabka, and, and and that's another great one. It's funny because I would find Robert Downey Jr. equally punchable in Back to School. Yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr. in that movie needs an iron bar to the head. He is a awful human being just flittering around the edge of that film. And that's what he did so well for a little while. There was a period of time where Robert Downey Jr. was annoying. Yeah. And it was maybe professional. Yeah, Like maybe it was like slightly charming, annoying. But nowadays, 30 some years later, it's kind of just you're annoying. The Karate Kid, just one of the guys, European vacation, back to school, and Karate Kid 2. And, of course, we are very uh, excited to see Billy Zabka's return because the, the Karate Kid series is hitting YouTube soon. And uh, that, that Daniel LaRusso and uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Johnny are reuniting as, as uh, adversaries again. So I'm looking forward to that. It's pretty wild. This one's just too easy. I'll, I'll name the actor and you'd say the first movie right off the top of your head. Ultimate Dick, Rucker Hauer. Well, Blade Runner. The Hitcher. Uh, the Hitcher, of course. Nighthawks. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Nighthawks. We've talked about that. Yep. Yep. No, he's excellent. And he's what. what's great is he understands the appeal of it. He understands how powerfully sexy it can be to be just a shit. And I think Hauer was one of those guys who channeled that really well. And it's weird watching him play nice. Like when you see Lady Hawk, it almost throws you because while I think he does a nice job in that film, I also think it's you always wait for the other shoe to drop with him. Yeah, definitely. He's like Christopher Lee in that respect. You know, uh, we, we saw him also in Spatosh and uh, we will soon see him in uh, Osterman Weekend, Breed Apart, the awesome Flesh and Blood, Wanted Dead or Alive, uh, in which he is a hero. I love Rucker Hauer. I just love his look, his demeanor, and he's a fantastic actor. And like you said, he seems to get he seems to get the psychology of a villain or a dick. He seems to understand a villain's motivations and a villain's viewpoint. Beyond that, he's just a great actor, and I'm thrilled that he's still busy. I mean, I, I love that he shows up in like freaking Batman and that Valerian movie showed up in that. It's just he's still cooking. All right, my next one. I can't remember many people that I sat in a theater wanting to punch more in the 80s who then turned out to be lovelier people in person than Miguel Ferrer in RoboCop. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you chose him because my next guy on the list was Kurtwood Smith from RoboCop. There you go. RoboCop is maybe one of the all-time Hall of Fame rabid dick movies because you've got Ronnie Cox at the top of that. You've got Kurtwood Smith over there like a dog off a leash. And then you've got Miguel Ferrer who wants to be the biggest dick in the room but can't quite manage it. And I f- that, is, that is what's so wonderful about him is. And those aren't even the street level villains. Then there's like Emil and all those guys. You know, it's like, it, the movie is laden with, with great villains. And Miguel Ferrer is, like you said, he's just great because the, the most interesting, interesting thing about that character is that he's upwardly mobile. That's something that we can all relate to being in an elevator and saying, oh, if I, if I get this report done, maybe I can get my promotion. And in most cases, that's an accountant or, or uh, a salesperson who's worrying about that. But this is a guy who is he wants to be a tycoon in the weapon field. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible version of social climbing. And for me, one of the great scenes in this movie is his bathroom confrontation with Ronnie Cox. Everything about it is a perfect sort of summary of the way power works, especially in the corporate world. 
and it is delightfully played. I think my favorite thing is watching the extras in the background get the fuck out of the room. Oh, man. (laughs) He's so great in that. Kurtwood Smith seems to get the psychology of being a dick. How you doing? Uh, 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 Bitches leave. I mean, even even in Dead Poet Society, where he's kind of a one note father, there's something there. There's a little doubt behind the eyes. Even when he's being a dick, there's that little there's that little bit of humanity there. And and uh, he's he's a fantastic actor, obviously much more well known now for playing the dad on um, uh, that 70s show. But as far as the 80s jerks go, uh, Kurtwood Smith is among my favorite. This this character would have been. This character in this portrayal would have been loathsome anyway. But then the movie got reshot. The ending of the movie got reshot and tinkered with. And it went from a movie that would have bugged me, but that at least thematically would have worked, to a movie I find morally loathsome and skin crawling. Michael Douglas and Fatal Attraction. Oh, good call. Okay. What a piece of shit. Let, I have not seen it in a long time, but let 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 me pose to you this question: Aside from the fact that he cheats on his lovely wife, and then the woman he cheats with throws her, kind of just you know drops her, ignores her, uses her. Beyond that, what else makes him a particularly a punchable dick? Here's what it is, and here's the here's the trade that they made when they reshot the movie. The, the original movie, the way it was supposed to work, was that after he confronts her towards the end of the film, she takes the knife that he uses to confront her and she kills herself. And she leaves enough of a trail that he ends up going to jail for murdering her because she got pregnant because of the affair. And it's her ultimate revenge. She realizes what she's not going to have and she sets him up and destroys him. Literally, the piece of opera they use throughout the entire film is about that. And there's this subtext that is clearly pointing towards that ending. Audiences weren't cool with the ending, so they went back, they reshot, and now the movie says, clearly, as you watch it, it's okay to have an affair. It's okay to sleep around on your wife. It's okay to ruin your family, as long as you and your wife kill the crazy bitch when you're finished. Because he gets everything back at the end of the movie. The end of the movie is, I'm with my wife, it's wonderful, we killed her, she's in a bathtub, we get everything back now, and she's dead. Why? Because you couldn't keep your dick in your pants. I remember when I first read about that original ending, I just thought, okay, movie might not have been as big of a hit with that ending. But if that was the ending, we would still be talking about that ending like we talk about seven. Oh, yeah, because it is such a it is such a morality play at that point. And look, I, I agree. People cheat every day. I'm not a big fan of infidelity in movies, and it and it, it it bothers me on a level because I think I took marriage vows very seriously, and I I find cheating it's not something I put up with in my real life with people around me, like friends of mine. If they do it, it's it's really hard for me to continue to be in their lives. You watch movies in which lots of horrible things that you would never but do that happen. Was, but the difference was, I would have just walked away going, eh, not for me. I don't like that kind of film. As opposed to what they made it, which became, I think, crazy. Yeah, you know, and and what's even weirder is that 
they just changed the ending. So if you were to like change it in the writing or change it in post-production, you'd say, okay, well, if we're going to give them a, a, an ostensibly happy ending, we need to write some scenes where he acknowledges what he did was wrong. He's punished. He is remorseful. And, it, and the movie never gives you that. So then to just or give where them she a, tips over into being a genuine monster for no reason. Yeah. It's a darkly happy ending when it should have just been a dark ending. Uh, was that ever sh- that was shot though, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and you can find it. It's out there. There's there's versions of that that have been re- put together and like I'm just saying thematically as a writer, that's the ending that fits. Is it a gut punch? Is it maybe uh, bittersweet and tragic? Yeah, but that's the point. You you know, like live by the dick, die by the dick, puncher. <laughs> All right. Good call. I will now go directly to an actor that you all know even if you don't necessarily know his name and that's my favorite thing about character actors is that you'll see them in 15 20 movies and they're just fifth or sixth or eighth build you don't remember or note their name but i have to give it up for clancy brown one of my very favorite lines we're about to talk about this film in a couple of months so i won't go too far into it but one of my very favorite lines in his entire career is just two words in bad boys and it's when he walks into the cell and there's that radio waiting on his bed and he looks around and somebody says hey he whose radio is that and his whole response as he picks it up is mine now i love him <laughs> I love Bad Boys, the 1983 Sean Penn, Rick Rosenthal. I love it. I can't wait till we cover it again. I haven't seen it in 20 years, and I know I'm still going to like it because it's a great, interesting movie about young people in prison. It's really good. All right. So Clancy Brown, of course, is the Kurgan in Highlander. He was also in The Bride in 85. He was in Buckaroo Banzai. He was in also in Extreme Prejudice. He's in a great movie in 88, Shoot to Kill. He's in Blue Steel in 89. Love Clancy Brown. You know, he's still still to this day playing badasses. Great at villain, but can also do can also do good guys. And I think his and I think his animated Lex Luthor is one of the best Lex Luthers that's ever been done anywhere. He's great. He's great in any media. He's got a phenomenal. It's one of the common threads that you find among great actors and is that um, they have great voices. All right. I just watched this one again with the boys the other night. Uh, these two guys I'm, I'm putting in here as a team because I would just put them side by side and just smack across both faces at once. Lenny and Squiggy. Uh, fucking Corey Haim and Corey Feldman and the Lost Boys. Oh, boy. I That movie is it holds up as as far as being a very silly, popcorny, surfacey. It's fine. It's fine for what it is. But holy God, watching it as a 47-year-old as opposed to a 19 or 17-year-old when it came out, those kids in particular, so unmanageably unpleasant to be around. Corey Hames' wardrobe in The Lost Boys looks like a blind lunatic dressed him. He's bizarre in the movie. And Drew, then- you remember, I bet you if you closed your eyes right now and I said, close your eyes and, and, and imagine you going to the movies in, in 1988. You would see kids dressed like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to. I, I was one of them. And believe me, I was punchable in 1987. That's the thing. I look back at it and I now <laughs> understand how it must have felt generationally to look at me at 17 and go, what the hell? 
What what yeah, the uh, hell? You know how you kind of had <laughs> you kind of had some an, an unexpectedly critical analysis of Gandhi and and you, did you, did you ever I'm I got, I'm getting somewhere with this. But did you worry that when you gave that opinion that you might get some feedback? I look, I figure I figure with some of these I'm I'm going to get some heat just because they're beloved in various ways. So yeah. The reason I asked Drew is because that's me when we get to the Lost Boys. I'm terrified. Uh, I think that is fine. And you know what? You're probably going to be closer to where I am now than I was in 87. I'm terrified that we're going to cover the Lost Boys because I, at this point, again, I haven't seen it in probably 15 years. But if you would ask me right now, I'd say, yeah, it's kind of like a pretty TV commercial. You're, you're, it's a Joel Schumacher movie. You're not wrong. All right, but but who knows? Maybe uh, maybe I'll, I'll, once I revisit it, I'll be like, no, I was too hard on it last time. Maybe let's put it this way: at least you're not going to be my friend who couldn't get over the fact that the Echo and the Bunnyman cover of People Are Strange has four notes instead of three at the beginning. You know what I oh, you know what freaks you know, when I, when I think of the Lost Boys, you know what I think of what. That one shirtless buff guy playing a saxophone which by the way stopped the movie cold when we screened it for the boys two weeks ago so we could all just laugh and celebrate how insane that is yeah it's a crazy choice it's uh it's pretty out there all right all right so what's up next for you man the theme of the show is you know punchable dicks but while this person does not have a dick, she has a vagina. She has to be included because she's amazing. And she passed away recently. I love the performance by Margaret Witten in Major League. Okay. Yeah. I would not have in a million years come up with that one. That's a very good choice. She is, you know, it's very simplistic. It's that the lovable boys are going to save the team from the rotten woman owner. And it's, it's very simplistic and and almost regressive when you look at it now. Uh, But if you look at it in the style of cartoonish late 80s comedies, she just, in the writing, it might be garish, but her performance is not. She knows that she is playing a cartoon villain and she is great in in Major League. Um, She's also really good in Secret of My Success from 87. Uh, She's also in Best of Times. She had a, a, a brief bit in Love Child, which we covered, and uh, she should have had a better career. Margaret Witten, she didn't uh, star in as many films as she probably should have, so uh, I I wanted to include her. Very good call. Uh, This guy uh, probably has a number of films that I could put on this list, but if I were to narrow it down to one, I would have to say I have never wanted to punch Tom Cruise in the face more than I did watching Cocktail. Oh, beautiful. See, this this works well. You you went for a different angle of it could be anybody, including a Tom Cruise. Mine are more career oriented dicks. We're going to talk about Tom Cruise and all the good that he did in the decade. And there's plenty. He's given lots of great performances. But wow, do I hate cocktail? Yeah, dude, there are some movies that are just so like ephemeral. There's just like. And and I, I've already been made fun for my that's a premise, not a plot line. But that's cocktail. What is cocktail about, Drew? Uh, he's a bartender and he fucks. He's a bartender who wants to become a success financially somehow. That's all. <laughs> That's what he wants. He's a bartender that wants to have sex with girls and uh, and make money and, and have a career. And, you know, we got like Brian Brown, who's also a ridiculous dick in this movie. It's such a weird film because it is so clearly a post MTV explosion movie where the soundtrack was more important than the film. 
everything about it feels like a package that they just drop people into after it was all made already. Um, I feel bad for Elizabeth Shue, who is miscast. She's so much more interesting than he is and so clearly not interested in him that the collision between them is so fake in the movie. It And it is smug turned up to 11. Whatever, if Nigel Tufnell was into smug, this would be the one that goes to 11. It just, oh my God. And and it plays like exactly like um, a two hour Fox pilot called The Bartender. And it's like, all right, if we get X amount of people to watch this, maybe we'll put it in, into 12 episode. Like it, it is just so generic that, it, you know, there's not even anything like human to grab onto. It just feels like mannequins and whatnot. It, it is ether. It is gone as soon as you get a nasty hit of it. So but let's be fair, far and away. The best Beach Boys song ever. (laughs) I'm quitting. I'm quitting the podcast now. Mid podcast. As I was going to do our John sketch, I um, I'm I'm about to I'm about to move on and grab one from you, and you're going to hate me, and we're going to talk for about 45 minutes about what a perfect, amazing, punchable dick is, William Atherton. See, we can go from Atherton to Zabka on this episode. We've got it all. And you are right. There is no, there is no buddy in the 80s who better embodied this than him. In Ghostbusters and Die Hard, if you just want to set those two performances up on a shelf, you've got the two perfect 80s antagonists. I'm sorry. Did you not say real genius? There you go. There's a third one. Uh, He's amazing. And we just revisited that one. He's amazing in that. And I recognize that guy now. There's a million with William Atherton's. If you watch tech news, that's him. Like there's a million of him running around still. That's what I think is so great is he got the ego that drives these people and understood exactly why they are who they are. When you watch Walter Peck, there's a little bit of Walter Peck that I understand, which is it's the Environmental Protection Agency, which in the 80s was a punchline. You were the you were doing the worst work there was. And as a government agency, you were thought of as nothing. So he has a chip on his shoulder to begin with, and he's not wrong. The environment needed a lot of help in the 80s, but it's the attitude that comes with it that makes him so remarkable to watch. And... If you didn't see it theatrical, if you weren't there in 84, the moment in the theater where Bill Murray points at him in the mayor's office and says, yes, it's true, Your Honor, this man has no dick. That was the biggest reaction I'd ever heard in a movie theater. People blew up, man. They blew up. Bill Atherton got his start on Steven Spielberg's first feature, and he does not play a dick. He co-stars with Goldie Hawn in the Sugarland Express, and he's really good. I wish that I honestly wish that had changed his career because it's a romantic lead. And that movie has that scene where he shows her the Roadrunner cartoon and then does the voices for her because they're they can't hear the drive in. And it's one of the sweetest moments I've ever seen between two characters where it's somebody identifying a need in somebody else and just helping them. And he's so beautiful in it. And the thing is, his, his 80s output was just Ghostbusters, real genius, no mercy and die hard. I'm not looking forward to the Richard Gere film again, but William Atherton, God bless you. Great 80s punchable dick. Can we get real for just a sec? Because I I actually heard one of the reasons that his career didn't go the way he wanted to, and it breaks my heart a little. I think we're in a much better place now, but it's a real testament to the fact that the industry has changed. After Sugarland Express, he couldn't get that kind of role again, and it was because William Atherton was a gay actor. 
And there was this weird pushback against him playing any kind of leads. It's funny. Not only have I never thought of him as his sexuality at all, but this goes to show you how little that matters. I did not know until right now. But it was the casting directors, unfortunately. It was that weird thing where they they got it in their head that you could only cast them certain ways and that you couldn't make them a lead because leads have to be romantic and leads have to do. And I'm so glad we've gotten past that in casting because I I really do think at this point it doesn't matter in casting but I think a guy like that Atherton you look at how good he was at everything he did while I love the fact that he was such a phenomenal ladies dick I kind of mourn a little bit that we didn't get some some range from him because I know he was more than capable of it okay uh, I'm gonna go now with an all-timer and it is impossible to look around the world right now and not see the influence and the long shadow cast by Thomas F. Wilson in specifically Back to the Future Part 2. I think he's one of the great performers. Yeah, one of the great performances of the 80s is Biff in the first Back to the Future. But the second one is where they let him off the leash to see how much he could do. And oh my God, he can do everything. He's so good. This guy, he could have had, I I know he's had a fine career, uh, but... I don't understand why he didn't blow up like, you know, like a a character actor who does three movies a year. God, so funny. So good at what he does. And honestly, watching him become all the different Biffs and watching how carefully he navigated like the old Biff, the young Biff, the alternate Biff, the Western Biff, this Biff. It's remarkable work. And I I think really he's one of the the things that makes back to the future hold together like it you could have as good a chemistry as you want between marty and doc but without biff to really drive that that series he has to be funny because it's a comedy but he also has to be legitimately intimidating because if he's not and he's just, if he's just a joke of a bully then like the punch at the end has no impact it means nothing Dude, and how scary is he in the car with leah thompson he's scary in that moment yeah, and Zemeckis shoots that really well because she looks like a shrinking violet and he looks like a freaking it's it is it is it, that's his worst moment. And then he gets beat down. And uh, yeah, he's great at being and there's all the little details like why don't you make like a screen or, you know, uh, why don't you make like a screen door on a battleship and leave like he's he's so bad at those jokes and he mangles them so well. Like that is what I love about Biff as well. It's hard to play stupid and it's hard to play stupid if you're smart. And not make it look like you're putting it on. And he plays it perfectly. I'm not even going to say this actor's name. I'm just going to name a couple of movies. How's that? Trading Places. Mr. Beaks. The Breakfast Club. The Principal. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the late, great Paul Gleason. Yeah. Uh, also, on, also on the list that I made and uh, just inarguable. Guy was so good. We already had one of the best dicks ever in William Atherton as the reporter, but most people will know that Paul Gleason played the horrible deputy police chief Dwayne Robinson in Die Hard. And he is phenomenal in Die Hard. He's phenomenal in Breakfast Club. That 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 swagger, this misplaced arrogance that he comes like sauntering into the into the library looking like, you know, trying to show off like in his cool, you know, his jacket and he's acting like cool, like, like he would with his own peers. And he doesn't, he doesn't even realize that that doesn't work on 17 year old kids. You just look more ridiculous doing your little mess with the bull and you get the horns. Like it is a perfect distillation of this adult hubris 
failing to realize that it doesn't work on children. Yeah, he is confident in only the way that somebody is completely wrong can be. Yeah, and he is uh, wonderfully funny in trading places. He, his character comes to an ugly uh, end in the movie, but he has a, a great bit at a phone booth where somebody's waiting behind him in the phone booth, uh, waiting at the public phone. I anticipate penetration and acquisition at 2100 hours tomorrow. Hold on. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's pretty great. He's in, um, he's in Morgan Stewart's Coming Home. He's in Tender Mercies. He's in uh, D.B. Cooper. He's in She's Having a Baby. Uh, love Paul Gleason. Rest in peace. Yeah. Now, this guy, this next guy, uh, love this guy. I am going to have such a good time talking about his 80s output. But there's no doubt that he frequently looked like he needed a good hard punch to the face. And Burt Young? No, I'm going to leave Mr. Young alone this week. Although I will say Burt Young in Rocky Four, punchable dick. <laughs> mega, mega. Him and that robot, mega punchable. And forget, I mean, also in Rocky One. I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with my man, Dennis Quaid in the movie Great Balls of Fire. What makes it more unlikable than just the fact that it's Jerry Lee Lewis and what he he did? It, it, it is the combination of and we're going to we're going to talk a lot about this movie when we get there. I'm fascinated by this movie. It's almost unwatchable and it's almost unwatchable because of how Dennis Quaid is directed in the movie. At some point, they made the decision that Jerry Lee Lewis was a close relative of Foghorn Leghorn. And they went as cartoon as they could go in terms of the tone of that movie, which is one of the only reasons it's even remotely palatable or a PG-13 film about cousin fucking. It's bizarre. And they really have him turn up the, okay, he's got the Southern accent. And he's got the, and he turns everything up so far that there's points in that movie, I don't know what he's saying. There's points in that movie I'm not entirely sure what he thinks he's doing as he's just walking across a room like he has this weird strut and this it is a crazy performance and it's crazy in the way that some of the big Nick Cage performances are crazy where they told him to take the swing they told him this is it you got to take the swing and not only does he miss but he like wrenches his back muscles and falls down and hits the bat into somebody else it's crazy can you give me a little uh give me give me some Give me, an impre- give me some uh, Dennis Quaid as Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, uh, my name is Jerry Lee Lewis, and I love Mara, my cousin. <laughs> Goodness gracious! That's it, and I and I think that's I think that's pretty accurate as far as the accent goes. I uh, have not seen it since it played theatrically, and now I am very much looking forward to revisiting it with this new insight. <laughs> uh, I have one. I have two more. But I uh, one is a special mention. Uh, the final actor I'm going to mention has graced our lives in films as varied as Nine to Five, The Muppets Take Manhattan, On Golden Pond, Dragnet, War Games, Tootsie. Drew, can I ask you a question, sir? Yeah. What do you think about Dabney Coleman? I think he's first rate. I think he's the fucking best Dabney <laughs> Coleman is first rate throughout the 80s and 90s very few people he's a great actor could do literally anything of course god is he good at being a jerk god having just rewatched Tootsie how delicate is his work in that how great my one of my favorite lines of that movie is where Dustin often finally reveals himself and Dabney Coleman goes I knew there was a reason she didn't like me it couldn't, couldn't be about him it couldn't be so 
<laughs> is an absolute master. Uh, if you like Dabney Coleman, uh, I'm, I'm sad that it's not 89. It is 1990. But if you love Dabney Coleman, check out a movie from 1990 called Short Time in which he's a detective who believes he's dying and sets out to kill himself in the line of duty so his wife can get the insurance money. And, of course, it was Dabney Coleman and Matt Frewer. That movie's not going to make a lot of money, but it is really fun. Uh, so uh, rather than point out all the amazing work he's done, let's just, you know, uh, I, the fact is Dabney Coleman is the patron saint of this podcast. And while many, uh, many great character actors, male and female, will get their due, Dabney Coleman is first rate. All right, so I'm gonna. Uh, there's two two more things I'm gonna do to to wrap this up. One is I'm going to set this one performance aside because I know it's in one of your favorite movies, and there is no sweatier little geek in the '80s than Paul Reiser and Aliens. Oh God, that is perfect. What a what a dirty sweaty little. You want to just talk about like thematic text and just like what character represents like the worst of the '80s. That's Burke, the consumer, the corporate, the financially, whatever serves the company and my pockets is all that matters. And that's still very common today. But that was the 80s. He is probably one of the most 80s characters ever. And boy, is Paul Reiser great as this dick. He is great. He's so good there that I spent all of Stranger Things season two convinced he was going to be just terrible. It's it's hard to let go of it now because even though Paul Reiser is just Paul Reiser, because of Burke, you keep expecting he's going to make that heel turn any moment when you're watching something. Yeah, that's part. I, I bet as an actor, he probably savors that because now his performances are like you're watching him even closer. Uh, but yeah, he's obviously known as stand up sitcom, likable, very affable character actor. But he uh, who, James Cameron or whoever decided that he was the guy to play the corporate uh, turncoat. That was a master genius stroke because, boy, is Paul Reiser great in that movie. I got a special mention, and I'll let you close it out. Okay. I would like to send a special punchable dick honorable mention to the dead John Derrick. There are very few people who simply by directing make you want to punch them, but yeah. That's that's probably it. Um, I'm going to I'm going to just run down a couple here of movie stars who I don't necessarily hate the movie star, but these are the performances in the 80s where if you asked me, I would punch the character as hard as I could. Arthur two on the rocks, Dudley Moore. And oh, not dude. Punching is too good for him. And it's specifically Arthur two. I'm not a crazy about him in Arthur, but Arthur two. Oh, my God. No, no. In Arthur, he's a selfish asshole who learns to be a little bit of a better person. And Arthur two is one of those sequels that is a literal betrayal of the first movie. It's not a continuation. It's not a new conflict. It's a literal betrayal. It's garbage, but we'll get to that soon. That's a good national one. lampoons, European vacation, Chevy chase. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So here's my theory. First vacation, third vacation. They're great films because the Griswolds are victims. They are victims of circumstance and Clark's enthusiasm. That's it. They are victims. In the second film they destroy Europe. They are the monsters that we unleash on Europe. I hate them in the second film. I hate the Griswolds and I hate everything about them. That's certainly fair. Some might say that that's kind of one of the points of the jokes is that they are the ugly Americans. I know, but I believe me, it, I even getting that joke, I just find him loathsome in that film. Yeah, I, uh, I think that. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And it's tied with Funny Farm, where the whole movie seems to be, boy, people in small towns suck. So it, I don't know which of those I want to hit him in most. Interestingly enough, I, I, I'm pretty sure this is true. Uh, 
I read an interview in which he called Funny Farm his favorite movie that he did. Woo-wee! Uh, I think probably because George Roy Hill directed it, and he probably looks at it like uh, some kind of like wistful throwback, quaint little Norman Rockwell movie. We'll get to it in Funny Farm later. Wow. Uh, all right, well, who else you got? I got two more. Judd Nelson, eminently punchable. In The Breakfast Club. But I think the two movies... You know what? Not in The Breakfast Club. As, as much as I think Bender brings it up you see what's underneath bender in that movie okay yeah 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 i don't know if it's making the grade or from the hip oh wow but one of those two he is the most obnoxious human being ever born yeah that was the weird part is that i have no problem with judd nelson i don't dislike the guy but when he started to become like get his few leading man shots it's like that's what he was it's like you are joe smug you're like the pre-dane cook dane cook and and like that's not that's not going to that's not a good that's an anchor. That's not a you know, that's not a, a vehicle. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to visiting from the hip again because I remember liking it as a kid, but I know it's not good. And making the grade, I couldn't tell you two scenes, even though I did, had saw that one as well. There's a whole there's a whole rash of those uh, DEG group, the D, uh, the De Laurentiis group movies uh, like. Uh, like from the hip or the bedroom window or that I'm really curious to see again. Oh, bedroom window is good. Cause I think I've only seen most of those once and I'm, I'm curious to revisit some of them. All right. And my final movie star. And I, we just talked about this guy last week. Clearly we both love him. Clearly we love many of the things he did, but I would say that the moment in the eighties where Eddie Murphy started to curdle was Beverly Hills cop two, where Axel basically spends the entire movie begging you to hit him in the face yeah and it's it, it's that thing that comes with like big success it's like at one point you go all right eddie murphy you're gonna play the fish out of water who has to earn his respect from all these idiots that he knows nothing about and he's like got it got it but now later he's like a giant movie star and he's like no no i'm just gonna be my persona and at axel foley in beverly hills cop and three two and three he's very likable in part one <laughs> He's very not likable in two and three. Um, and then my last question for you, and then we'll wrap this up. Is there anybody who the actor themselves bugged you, even if the films didn't, even if like or somebody where as much as you tried, you just never quite connected to them because of something, something that just made it hard to connect with that. actor. You mean like an actor? I, uh, basically, I'm asking, did you have Steve Gutenberg syndrome with anyone? No, Steve Gutenberg to me is innocuous. Uh, not, not you know, just kind of like a placeholder for a better actor. Not offensive, but somebody who like I actually actually dis like get displeasure from looking at him on screen. Joe Piscopo. Ooh, <laughs> perfect. That is a perfect example. All right. Yeah, and I kind of like a few. I like wise guys, and I, 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 you know, but boy, I like Johnny Dangerously, but something about Joe Piscopo's face just kind of freaks me out a little. <laughs> All right. Well, two guests we will not be having on the podcast anytime soon. But thank you, guys. As always, um, I love this suggestion. Thank you. Stuff like this is great for bonus episodes when you give us something to kind of riff on and play with. And this was a really good, easy suggestion because there's so many of these great performances that we can talk about. Um, as always, everything you do to, to rank and review and, and help get the word out about the podcast helps us. Please Take the time to share the podcast with one new person this coming week. It makes all the difference in the world. 
Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to the regular episodes and double thanks. If you are a P- Patreon subscriber, we sincerely appreciate it. Ah!